I, I hope you know that. We gather to remind ourselves the world doesn't revolve around us. You are told. You are told every day of your life. I'm told every day of my life that the world revolves around me. And secondly, I am told by the culture to seek out people that are just like me. And the church ought to be that uncomfortable and yet needed place that says the world doesn't revolve around us and we are supposed to be with people who are unlike us. Read the New Testament and see what the church is. Good Lord, we veered so far from what the church is called to be. Kendrick Lamar. Sorry, I need to move. I'm just like, be with me. Stay with me. Stay with me. All right? I need to move quickly. It's communion Sunday. I feel like I don't have enough time to preach, and I feel rushed, and I'm frustrated, but life interruptions. Thank you, Lord. This is an article. I just want to read it to you. Kendrick Lamar wants to showcase the side of God that, hasn't, that he hasn't seen in church. One that focuses less on the blessings of God and more on God's wrath. Lamar, the 29-year-old rapper whose fourth studio album is sitting atop Billboard charts, believes churches that only focus on the idea of hope are one-sided. I went to a local church some time ago, and it appalled me that the same program was in practice, a program that I'd seen as a kid, praise, dance, worship, he says, which is beautiful. Pastor spewing idea of someone's season is approaching, this, this idea of hope. However, Lamar said he felt a sense of emptiness when he heard these types of sermons as a child. Now that the Grammy Award rapper based out of Compton, California, has been studying his faith for himself, he revealed why he was leaving churches feeling spiritually unsatisfied as a child. Rapper said he discovered a simple truth that while God is loving and merciful, he is also a jealous God of discipline and obedience. By the way, I think he represents heart and soul of a lot of people in this culture, particularly his generation. For every conscious choice is a sin, will be corrected through discipline, whether physical or mental, direct or indirect, he said, through your sufferings or someone else close to kin. It will be corrected. Lamar suggested that a lot of churches don't speak about this hard truth because it might turn people off. He's right, you know. As a community, we're taught to pray for mishaps and he'll forgive you. Yes, this is true, but he'll also reprimand us as well. As a child, I can't recall hearing this in service. Maybe leaders of churches knew it will run off churchgoers. We want to hear about hope and salvation and redemption. Though his son died for our sins, our free will to make whether choice or we want still allows him to judge us. So in conclusion, I feel it's my calling to share the joy of God, but with exclamation more so to fear of God, knowing the power and what he can build, but also what he can destroy. While the rapper says he loves when people sing about what makes God happy, the fear of God made Lamar take his relationship with God more seriously. Personally, once the idea of real fear registered in my mind, it made me try harder at choosing my battles wisely, which will forever be tough because I'm still made of flesh. But I want to spread this truth to my listeners. It's a journey, but it will be my key to the kingdom and to theirs as well. I want to talk to you about the Father's discipline today. It's not going to be a pleasant, happy, happy topic. We've been talking about life interruptions. How we have our lives altered and redirected along the way. 
It's non-negotiable in the SEC. Things like microphones not working when you expect it to. We've all seen our plan A's take a backseat to unexpected realities. When our lives get interrupted, we focus on two questions, why and when. And I've been, I've been beating at this for like four weeks now. And he says, some come as a result of what we do. And I so appreciate Kendrick Lamar's heart. Some, some come. And we just need to be, take ownership of some things. Some come as a result of other sins of other people. Some come because of we live in a fallen, broken world. And other times, interventions come because of God. And I've been saying to you and me, listen, there's something wrong that we don't expect life interruptions. Do you know what I mean? Like, we ought to expect that our lives will get interrupted by sin. And again, I'm not saying we crave it. You know, don't be that person that says, my life is kind of routine. I need an interruption. No, we don't need it. But we, it's going to happen as a result of us, sins of other people, living in a phone world, and sometimes God. Now, here's the thing, though. The promise of Scripture is not that you and I will be exempt from hardships and sufferings and difficulties. The promise is that God will be with us through hardships, sufferings, and difficulties. It is ridiculous for a Christian to go, what is this? The promise is not, it's not going to happen. I'm just like you. I don't want God to walk with me during interruptions of life. Don't send them in the first place. I am just like you. I don't want God to be with me during interruptions. Press the eject button. Get me the heck out of here. But the promise of God is that I will be with you to do some things in you and through you that you otherwise would not be able to do. So what if we came to expect it and embrace it? Embrace it. Meaning, we ask a different question. That is, God, what are you wanting to do in me in the midst of this eruption? And what are you wanting to do through me? Now, I want to just focus today on the whole, what do you want to do in me, okay? We'll focus on the through me next week as we kind of come to a conclusion of this sermon series. What do you want to do in me? And I said, I said like three weeks ago, this, this is how typically it's happened for me. My flight gets delayed, six-hour delay. I'm sitting in Miami International. I want to go home. I'm tired. And I am so angry. And when I say, God, what do you want to do in me? I hear the voice of God going, let's start here. Why are you so angry? What's up with the anger? And Peter, we've been pointing at this for how long now? You have an anger issue. You've had an anger issue for years. Why are you living in denial of that? Why don't you deal with that? Or how about this? How about your tendency to actually just blame other people? When things go wrong, why is it your tendency to just blame others instead of taking ownership of something? Oh, how about this? How about the fact that you excessively worry and you just shrug it off? It's my personal. No, no, no. Why do you excessively worry? Is it because you think you know better how life ought to go and you don't think God will get it right? See, pause and ask yourself. Pay attention to your emotions. Do you remember this picture? When we went through emotionally healthy spirituality? Do you remember the bulk of what lies underneath? Tip of the iceberg is what people see, the 10%. The 90% of what lies underneath 
where the anger, the resentment, the bitterness, the lack of forgiveness, the lust, all that stuff lies. And what I've been saying to you is this. Life interruptions cause those things that are hidden underneath to bubble to the top. See, we think when stuff happens and we go, I'm so angry because of that. I'm so frustrated because of that. We think that these things cause, these stresses and these uncomfortable situations cause us to be angry. They don't cause anything. You know what it does? It simply reveals what's lying underneath. I don't know why we as Christians just don't pay attention to emotions. What? And we don't ask those deep questions. Let me say it again. Life interruptions could be the very thing that God causes. That stuff that you just repress and don't want to deal with. And God might go, what are we going to do about that? What are we going to do about that? How long are we going to continue to ignore it? What are you wanting to do in me? By the way, that prayer, in me, through me, that's regardless of life interruption series. That's a good prayer. Even if you don't have stuff going on, it's a great prayer to ask. God, what do you want to do in me? What do you want to do for me? So we've been looking at the story of Joseph, the life of Joseph. And we've seen how God is the main character. That even though unseen to the human eye, God is orchestrating, God is working, God is actively moving behind all what's going on externally. We're looking at the family that God has chosen. Check this out, you guys. The family that God has chosen to continue the promise that he made to Abraham, to bless all the nations. But we've seen this dysfunctional, toxic family headed by a guy named Jacob. Do you remember? By the way, the Bible doesn't paint a favorable picture of Jacob. It's so realistic. Jacob is a passive, dysfunctional, terrible father. And his sins are having ramifications for the rest of the family, right? His terrible fathering is ruining the entire family. Joseph is turning into a spoiled, cruel egomaniac as a 17-year-old. And rest of his brothers are filled with jealousy, envy, resentment, and they become literally murderous. Now, this is the family that God is going to use to become the basis to be the, the, the chosen people of God, the community, basis for God's community that will bless the rest. But how in the world is Joseph going to become wise and loving? So they could use his gifts to save the world. How are his brothers going to become wise and loving so they could be on basis for God's community in the world when terrible fathering, when terrible fathering is threatening to rupture the entire family? Here's how. This is where we're going today. In an unbelievable way, what we're going to see is that God intervenes in this family to be the father they never had. We see God intervening and moving in this family beyond their father, above their father, to become the father they never had. So they can become who God has called them to be. No passage in Scripture better illustrates. Well, literally, you've seen the life in the life of Joseph and Jacob and his family. Then text in Hebrews chapter 12. That's where we're going to spend bulk of our time. And I'm going to make references, though, to stories 
of Joseph in Genesis. Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're at. And again, I'm talking to you about God's fatherly discipline today. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to start at verse 5, okay? Start at verse 5. Verse 5 of chapter 12 in Hebrews says, Have you completely forgotten? Everybody say forgotten. Forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. That's right out of Proverbs 3, 11, 12. 12 times in six short verses, the word discipline is found. 12 times. What does the word discipline mean? The reason why we struggle, and even the, the introduction of Kendrick Lamar, the reason why we struggle is when you hear the word discipline, what immediately comes to mind? Punishment. Immediately we think of punishment. And so we cringe and we struggle, and some of you are like, ugh, discipline. We, but the word discipline in Greek, do you know what it is? It's the word paideia, from which you get the English word pediatrics or pediatrician. I'm married to a pediatrician. I happen to know what she does. Do you know what she does? She gives oversight to the overall nurture and health of that child. A pediatrician is someone who gives oversight to the entire environment of that child so the child receives whatever he or she needs to grow up mature and strong. Paideia. Now, why is that important? Here's why it's important. The reason why the English translators translate this word discipline is because the word paideia has teeth in it. Paideia is child nurture, but it's child nurture with teeth in it. By the way, today is going to be real personal for us parents. Actually, children too who grew up with parents. Child nurture, paideia, remember that. It's nurture, but it's teeth in it because you have to bring consequences into a child's life. Sometimes, good parents, you have to bring consequences. You and I have to bring sharply unpleasant things into a child's life sometimes. Child nurture, paideia. It's the job of a good parent, if you agree with this, say amen. It's a job of a good parent to bring, listen, small amounts of pain, consequences into a child's life now so he'll be saved of a miserable life later. If my child lies, and Pastor Michael shared actually a wonderful antidote about a story. I won't share that this one. If my my child lies, the worst thing I can do for that child is to do nothing. If my child lies, the worst thing that I can do is shrug it off. Why? Because if he turns into a liar, nobody will trust him and he will trust nobody. Liars don't trust people. And people don't trust liars. It's just common sense, but here's the thing. Paideia. There's an enormous difference between paideia, child nurture, and retribution. Retribution is if your child does something wrong, they just simply get what they deserve. It's payback. It's all punitive. And all parents fall into retribution once in a while. Uh, can I, I'm just sharing my story. I would love to think that I have pure motivations when I discipline my child, but it's a mixed bag. There are times when I bring 
consequences so he can grow, so he can be a better person. Other times, I'm just frustrated. I'm just mad. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I just get frustrated. I just want to spank him. I just want to. And yes, I believe in spanking. Don't, don't email me. I believe in sp- <laughs> All the people of color in the room said, yes. And all the white folk are like, mm. it's, it's a multicultural church, I understand. Y'all have your own ways of parenting. Sometimes, listen, when Noah frustrates me, when he disobeys me, sometimes I just want payback, retribution, punishment. But paideia is not retribution. It's restorative. It's redemptive. It's to help the child grow. Paideia is you bring just enough consequences, but not an iota more. You bring just enough uh, intentional pain, but not an ounce, millimeter more to help that child grow, to not be a liar, to not be cruel, not be selfish, not be arrogant. If I bring too little, he'll shrug it off. If I bring too much, he'll be embittered or despair. Somehow I need to bring just the right amount of discipline, child nurture, so that he becomes the person that God has called him to be. Hilt, you go, that's super hard. I disagree. It's impossible. No parent on earth can ever do that. That's why you need the paideia of your heavenly father. Not a single person sitting here today God, paideia from our parents. And now we do it to our children. We are flawed. That's why we need the perfect child nurture paideia of our Heavenly Father. And the good news is no matter who you are, where you come from, Do you realize how imperfect your father was or whether you didn't even have a father? Do you realize that you and I have a heavenly father who knows how to bring just the right amount of consequences into our lives in such a way that we become the person that God has gloriously created us to be? Is that good news to anybody? And we resent it? I do. Verse 7, in your hardship is discipline. And I'll come back to that word, in your, literally in Greek, was the word hypomeno or hyperstand. What do I mean? It means to be absolutely still, immovable. It gets to this idea of obedience. I tell you why it's important. He says, in your hardship is discipline. Because when you and I go through hardship, discipline, some suffering, the first thing that we do is we retreat and we stop doing things we know we ought to do. We don't pray anymore. We stop going to worship. We withdraw from community. We don't read scripture We even retreat from our own consciences. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, when you feel the urge to do that, when you're going through hardship, the last thing you want to do is to stop obeying, stop doing the things you know you need to do. Hyperstand. Do not retreat. Do the next 
right thing. But Peter, I, I don't even know what to do. The next right thing might mean, I don't want to be there, but I need to be in community. I don't want to go to worship, but I need to go to worship. And if you have no desire to pray, the next right thing, hypemono, might just simply be God help. Whatever you do, he was saying, when hardship comes, human nature goes, forget you, forget God. He says, stand still. Don't retreat. Don't retreat. You know you want to retreat and stop. He says, stand still. So for some of you, the next thing might be turning to someone in your community and saying, I need help. And just acknowledging their need. But whatever you do, do not retreat. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. But you know and I know. What retreating and stopping doing what we're doing ultimately results in. It keeps going. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline. Again, when you hear the word discipline, think what? Think what? Think what? The perfect idea of your heavenly father. Just to write them out. Not an ounce more. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. Well, some of us. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? I could just preach on that. Submission to discipline of God could mean life or death. Verse 10, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. They tried. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his soul. This is what I love. He says, God, our parents disciplined us in a way that seemed best. Our Heavenly Father disciplines us in a way that is best. The first four verses, the question was, what is godly discipline? And then this, these verses come to this. Uh, how does godly discipline work? <laughs> you know, how, how does godly discipline work? And the author gets to this idea when he says, in your hardship. Listen, I'm going to be quick about this because I want to spend the rest of the time on why is this important. Here's how I think godly discipline works, okay? And it's reflecting the life of Joseph. Every single one of us right here living on earth, is living in a broken world. Would you agree with that? There's brokenness outside of us. You will face, I will face betrayal, disappointments. People are going to stab you in the back. There's going to be tragedies. There's going to be troubles, sickness, disease, and death. It's inevitable on earth. Every single person on earth is living in a broken world. But here's the other thing. Every single one of us living on earth has a broken soul. There's brokenness inside of us. There's stuff in here that I'm embraced to admit. Anybody? There's selfishness here. There's right self right. There's arrogance here. There's fear here. There's insecurity here. There's greed in here. There are all kinds of things in here. Every single one of us. Do you know what God does? God in his loving wisdom will allow the brokenness of the world to come into relationship with the brokenness inside of us. In just the right way, in just the right amount, at just the right time. 
so that we would move from fear to courage, from insecurity to being deeply secure, from being selfish to being generous, from being self-unaware to being incredibly self-aware. That's the entire story of Joseph. It's his life. What do I mean? Potiphar's wife, filled with lust, accuses him falsely, and he gets thrown in jail. Brokenness of the world. That's evil. God didn't cause it. His brothers, filled with envy, jealousy, hatred, total dysfunction in their family, brokenness of the world. Brokenness of the world, though, God allows to come in contact with Jacob's what? Brokenness of his soul. Do you remember who he's becoming? Do you remember who he's coming? Arrogant, self-centered, self-righteous. God allows the brokenness of the world to come in contact with brokenness of his own soul in such a way that he is awakened to his sins. He is awakened to his pride. He is awakened to who he is. So much so that the very end of this, remember, his testimony is what? Genesis 50, 20. You meant it for evil, brokenness of the world. But what? God meant it for good. Think about your life. Think about my life. Think about how many times you've seen the brokenness of the world come into contact with your own brokenness in the form of life interruptions. This is what author of Hebrews is saying when he says God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his what? holiness in his loving wisdom brokenness of the world you can't escape it brokenness of your soul and this is important at just the right time our perfect heavenly father in just the right way our perfect heavenly father in just the right proportions to make you great how many of us our perspective would change if we saw hardships and disciplines in our lives as a way of God getting his glory and his beauty into our soul. By the way, do you realize that this is how you're supposed to, I'm supposed to read and translate Romans 8, 28? For God works for the good of all things to those who, you know what we do with that? We always think outside. Here's what, we go, God works in all things. Here's how we translate that, okay? Here's how we translate. We go, well, I was late for a job interview, and so I was speeding, and I ran the red light, and I got into a massive accident, and I lost that interview and lost my job. But the girl that I ran into, well, I found out she was a Christian and loved Jesus. And we started dating. And then I found out she was the perfect woman for me. And now I'm happily married. God works. We think that's how things work out there. Did you ever ask this question? God, what does that mean for me in terms of what is the kind of work that you want to do in me? I know you love me. And I know you accepted me. And because you love me, accept me, you will not just let me be. I know that because you love me, the kind of good work that you want to do has nothing to do with external circumstances, working out a job. And, but what is the good work that you're wanting to do in me? To make me more like Jesus.
Instead of just looking at circumstances, looking around trying to guess what God is doing, can I just ask, how many of us spend exorbitant amount of energy trying to guess what God is doing? How much emotional energy do we expend? God, what... Instead of doing that, may I gently and firmly ask us to do something else. Instead of trying to guess what God might be up to, what if we paused and go, in this situation, God, is it about my cowardice? Is it about my pride? Is it about my insecurity? Is it about my self-righteousness? Brokenness of the world, brokenness of our soul, just the right way, just the right time. I tell you what happened to me. When I asked this question, I realized, and this might not be for you, and it's not always the case, but for me, my life interruptions are often about my false idols and gods in my life. When I ask this question, God, external broken, internal brokenness, do you know what I come to realize? And it may be for you, might not. Many times what God is pointing his finger at is that thing that I've placed as a value above God, as a worth above God beauty above God. It's that thing that I've been saying to myself, I need to have this or my life is done. I need to have this or my life is not complete. I need to have this or the thing that he keeps putting his finger on are the things that I'm placing as a greater priority than God. How does this work, discipline? External internal brokenness. Just the right time. Just the right way. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but is painful. Can I get an amen to that? Later on, though, it produces the harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Why do we need it? Do I need to spend time on this? Yes? Okay, I was, I was thinking you guys would go, no, we don't, we don't, we know why we need godly discipline. But it, I, I, let me spend a couple minutes on why we need gospel discipline. Again, I'll just speak for me as a parent of a nine, of a, of a six-year-old, a nine-soon-to-be-ten-year-old, and a 12-year-old. Do you know what happens to a child that never has their will crossed? I've seen it. Do you know what happens to a child that is never told no by their parents? Do you know what happens to a child that says to the parents, I know what's best for me. What's best for me is that I eat candy 24 hours a day. I go to sleep whenever I want to. How do you know what's better for me? I know what's best for me. Do you know what happens to that child when they get, their will is never crossed and never disciplined? Say with me. It wrecks them. But church family, Don't we sometimes do the same thing to God? Church family, don't we sometimes do the same thing to God? Why would you know what's better for me? Don't we, God, how dare you cross my will? These are my plans. These are my neatly laid out plans. I'm embarrassed preaching this because I am my six-year-old child. God, why would you know any better than me? I'm picturing Noah right now. How 
How dare you cross my will? How dare you bring that into my life? Why would you think you're wiser than me? Do you know why we need discipline? Because we do that to our Heavenly Father all the time. All the time. Some of us are doing that right now. We are literally going, this doesn't make any sense to me. So therefore, there can't be a good reason. That's my Noah. I'm not going to tell you why, because even if I've told you, you won't fully understand. His attitude, it doesn't make sense to my six-year-old brain. That means there is no good reason. But we do that to God all the time. Do you know why we need it? Two reasons, real quick. One, we need it to show us who we are. I've been telling you throughout the sermon series, you are not going to learn about your flaws by being told. You have to be shown. Life has to show you. If you really sit there and go, I don't need anybody. I can learn on my own. You and I are so blind, so self-unaware. We need experience in life to show us what our flaws are. There's really no other way for me and you to learn about our flaws. And if we don't do the hard work of not just seeing our flaws, but addressing them, dealing with them, they're going to control us and wreak havoc in our lives. Can I show you how this works? Can I show you how this works? Yes? Let me show you how this works. You and I know what it's like to experience the results of our character flaws, right? Results. You and I know what it's like when we act out of insecurity. Whoop, there it is. We act out of fear. Whoop, there it is. We act out of pride or jealousy. We know what it's like to see the results of acting on our character flaws. But there is a difference, though, because what the author, he was saying this. There you Author, he was saying, what God does is not just show you the results of your character flaws, but he'll actually reveal your character flaws. How does that work? Newlyweds will say to me all the time, I didn't know how selfish I was until I got married. And literally what they're kind of saying is, says that God went, you're selfish, so I'm going to give you a spouse to punish you for your selfishness. (laughs) Sometimes I think it's true. No. Do you know how this works? Listen, your spouse didn't result in your selfish. Do you know what God did? God God said, because you're selfish, I'm giving you a spouse to reveal and show you just how selfish you are. See, sometimes God will let our addictions face its consequences and our marriage will blow up. Sometimes God will let our workaholism consequences. But please realize that many times, don't just pay attention to the results and go, well, that's what happens when I sin. Take a step back and go, what are the things about my character flaws that are being revealed by my boss, revealed by my spouse, revealed by my friends, revealed situations? I'm just going to say for myself, I am in so much denial much of the time. I am so self-unaware so much of the time. I am so prone to blame others so much of the time that I'll never know the freedom of seeing who I really am and seeing what my faults really are without godly discipline. 
The second reason, though, I need to see why I need God's discipline is when he disciplined not just to show us who we are, but we need God's discipline to show us what's really worth living for. Does this resonate with anybody? I can tell you a number of times that I've heard as a pastor, somebody will go through a hard time, and, and it's inevitable. They'll say to me something along the lines of, Pastor in light of all of this, I realize now what's really important. It's family. It's friends. It's relationships. real measure of our lives, church, will not be all the stuff that we acquire or the successes that we achieve. It's the relationships that we've built, the lives we've touched, people we've loved and people who've loved us. If you live today as if you don't need people, you will get to prove it later. If you live as if you don't need people today, you'll get to prove it later. The people that you invest in today will be people that will be invested in you tomorrow. And maybe one of the things that God does through divine interventions, life interruptions, is cause us to go, what am I really living for? What am I really living for? And it's not just that what's really living for is for people and community, and you guys know where I'm going with this. It's also, though, this truth, and that is, I don't really realize that God is all that I need until God is all that I have. And discipline, hardship is a way of, I'm telling you, just stripping away all stuff. It's just stripping away stuff. And brings me to that place where I'm going, God, do I really believe this? That you're all that I need. And sometimes it's godly discipline to come and help me realize that I'm putting my ultimate hopes in something that doesn't matter. Ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction is something that just doesn't matter that I'm putting all my energy and hopes into things that at the end of the day will not matter and cannot just lovingly and firmly say to you, could it be that where you are right now as we talk about life interruptions is for God to bring you to that very simple place for you to realize God is all that I need. There is nothing On earth, there is nothing in all of creation. There is nothing. How do we apply this? Come on up, brother. How do we apply it? And and, and that's simple. It's going back to verse 5. I heard you guys, I had you guys utter these words. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? And so two quick things and then we're done and take communion. One is remember that you're his child. What do I mean? Remember that you're his child. Remember that you and I are his child. It's calling for humility. It's calling forth this posture that says, many times children will think that that discipline is a little too much, it's a little too long, and it's a little unfair. It will be almost impossible for a child. My sons, my daughter, they have never come to me and said, Dad, I think that's perfect punishment, actually. That is like spot on. It's, uh, it's, it's right on the money. 
I have never had a child ever say that to me. Do you know why? Because to a child, it will always seem like it's too much. It's too unfair. It's a little too long. Are you hearing me? So if you are sitting there going, God, what is this? It seems a little too unfair, unloving, and a little too long. You might need to remind yourself, my, my, my myself, God, I am a child. And it'll be 20 years before Parker comes to me and says, and remember when you did that? Thank you. Will you remember that you are a child can I get an amen? I know this, this bumps against our arrogance and self-right and independence and this just everything within us. Just goes, oh! But remember that you're his child. But I want an explanation. If it requires an explanation before you will submit and obey, you are forgetting that you are his child. Can I say that again? If you and I sit there and go, I want an explanation for this, you are forgetting that you are his child. Explanations, my church family, is a cheap substitute for trust. Explanations are a cheap substitute for trust. But secondly, though, I don't just remember that you're his child. Remember that you're his child. Remember that you're his child. Is this good news to anybody? Here's what I mean. When we go through discipline, and this is me, when, I, when I'm going through godly discipline, and I think it's too much, it's too long, it's too unfair, almost always, you know what, my, my brain immediately goes to, what did I do wrong? What have I done in the past? What are the consequences? What are the things that God hasn't forgiven me? What are the ways? And I immediately go to these areas in which I have fallen, in which I have failed, in which I have messed up. And I immediately go, God is punishing me right now until I remember that I'm his child. Which means that no matter what it is, it's not retribution. It's not vindictive. It's not condemnation. It's not punishment. Do you know why? Because Jesus Christ took all of that for me on the cross. When you are tempted to go, oh, it's punishment, it's retribution, he doesn't love, stop and go. It is not vindictive. It is not retribution. It's not payback like my earthly fathers. It is loving discipline. Why? Because he took all the vindictive, condemning punishment for me. So when his godly discipline comes, refuse to say to yourself, it's vindictive. Just pause and go, everything, everything is out of love. Everything, everything is out of love. Everything is out of love. How do you know? Because of this thing. Because of this thing. Because of the cross. This right here reminds me every single day of my life. Every single second, every moment when I go, I'm being punished. He was punished for me. I'm being condemned. He was condemned for me. I'm being forsaken. No, he was forsaken for me. 
everything, everything, everything is out of love. Everything is out of love. That's why John Newton, hymn writer for Amazing Grace, said this. Everything is necessary that he sends. And nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Story of Joseph. Story of you and me. And the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you take this, remember, 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 have we completely forgotten Hebrews 12, 5, that we are his sons and daughters and he is our heavenly father. Why? Because Jesus, through his death and resurrection, became our older brother. Then he took the cup, the cup of the new covenant, and he said, this is my blood that's shed for you. Whenever you take it, do it in remembrance of me. And remember, out of love, he poured out his love. There'll be two stations in the middle and two stations up front. Pastor Michael, Pastor Caitlin, if you guys could stand in the middle. Susie, if you could come help me up front, please. Thank you. When you're ready, come forward. Carlton's going to lead us in a time of reflection on this powerful song. Body of Christ broken for you, Amber. Blood of Christ shed for you.